outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 84. Today in the show, we're joined again by one of our favorite past guests, Hank Shaw, and we're diving deep into everything you need to know to take your venison cooking to the next level. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, with the holidays quickly approaching, we are talking food. And joining us is a repeat guest, Mr. Hank Shaw. And if you remember back from, I think it was episode number 65, Hank is one of the leading culinary experts on cooking wild game. He's a blogger at Hunter Angler Gardener Cook and the author of several great wild game related books. And in that first episode we had with Hank, he shared some really incredible advice on properly handling your big game in the field, butchering, and finally how you know how to best cook it, and a bunch of different ideas on, on venison cooking. But that was kind of a, a smaller portion of our podcast, just that last third. And today we wanted to dive further into that aspect and really go deep into the cooking side of venison because, you know, meat and cooking after all, it's what this whole hunting thing is about. So today Hank is going to help us understand a whole plethora of different preparations and ideas for cooking venison. And hopefully, we all have freezers full of venison by now with which we can test these new cooking tips and ideas. And especially with Christmas and and all the other holidays on the horizon, there should be plenty of opportunities to share that venison with our family and friends. So I'm looking forward to it. I think Hank's going to have some great stuff to share with us, and he's uh, always a fun guy to talk to as well. But before we give Hank a call, My co-host and I have to go off on a brief tangent, as we do every week, and I need to share some very sad news. I, your host, Mark Kenyon, have been crushed in the Wired Hunt Trail Camera Contest. Congratulations, Dan. Thank you. What was the the final score percentage? Well, I looked earlier this morning, and when I last checked, you had a vote of 68% for your buck, uh, Gordon Bombay. Gordon Bombay. He definitely... Passes the eye test. Yeah, that's for sure. I'll be honest. I, I think that if it came down, the score would actually be cl- closer than what everybody thinks. 
but uh, I think they're right up there in that 180 mark. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think I think Gordon probably takes it. He's just got a lot of stuff going on, but uh, but a lot of impressive deer there that were up for consideration. That's I think right. that's the the moral of the story. So that's right. Unfortunately, neither of us killed any of them. <laughs> no, but you did get. And so, dude, I just, I don't know what it is. I just love checking trail cameras. Yeah. I mean, I if I wasn't a hunter, I like my buddy. He's not a hunter. He's not going to go out in a bow or with a gun and, and shoot a deer. But he loves checking his trail camera. I, I he's he got a new farm. That farm with all the big deer on it. That you know I I talk about every once in a while. Oh yeah. And uh, he just loves. I, I talked him into getting a couple trail camera, and he just loves. Loves it. Yeah. It's they're addicting. It's a lot of fun. It's it's a huge part of now I think yours and my just our hunting season enjoyment in general. A big part of it is just getting the pictures, seeing who's there, seeing what bucks are moving through the area. Uh I think it's fair to say that we both just love deer and seeing them and looking at them and thinking about them. So pictures definitely help with that, that's for sure. And right now I have my one of my uh trail cameras set on video mode, so it's taken like fifteen second bursts of footage nice and some of that stuff's just really cool you can a little bit more than what a picture shows like what doe is the mature doe and like the alpha doe of the the group like when she comes in she rules the roost just like bucks have a a ranking so do so do does that's pretty cool to see yeah you know i for some reason i just never turned my video mode on i don't know if it's because i'm just paranoid that something will go wrong Mm -hmm. um but i never turn it on but i probably should especially this time of year when i'm you know not so much in hunt mode it's more so just getting some pictures just to see who's around it would be fun just to see that behavior that's right i agree with that so uh my guess yeah that's what i was gonna ask (laughs) have you my guess have you started thinking about it well i've uh i've contacted rick flair's people a couple times (laughs) and uh No, no, I haven't. I want, I don't know when you, when you're planning on doing this actual podcast, but I want to make it some badass guest. Like, of course, of course, some guy or gal or whoever, that's just going to be like, yes. And then, you know, (laughs) that's, that's your only criteria for the guest. A guest that makes everybody go, yes. And then, you know, maybe he's going to, maybe he'll just sit and talk the whole time and you just sit back in awe. Maybe he'll give some pointers. Maybe he won't. Maybe he goes (laughs) off on a tangent about, you know, why he feels Bush Light is the best beer in the nation. I don't know. Are we even, are we going to talk about deer at all on this, this Dan hosted podcast? You know, I think that, I think that it should be a main focus because after all, this is a a deer hunting podcast and that's why people tune in every day or every week. But I feel there needs to be a little hot sauce in with this episode. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> so I have to do a lot of thinking. And so if it's official and I did win the bet, I, I feel that I want to do some proper planning and not jump to conclusions and just be like, hey, you, you're on the you're on the show. You know, yeah. I think that's a good idea. I think that's fair. You, you won. You won fair and square. So you get to host an episode. And uh, yeah, I'm thinking sometime the next couple months. So you just uh you keep on thinking. Shoot me your ideas, and we'll make it happen. Oh, this is going to be glorious. I cannot wait until <laughs> – and I don't even know if I want to tell you who the guest is. I just want, like, well, as we're doing our intro, 
as we're doing, we're doing our intro, and it's just like, okay. Uh, and today's guest is Gordon Bombay, and I actually <laughs> interview a deer on the show. If you pull that off, that'd be that'd be probably a first for the podcasting world. I'll say. <laughs> Oh man! Well, I'm looking forward to it too. It'll be nice just to sit back and and let Dallas Fort Worth take it away for <laughs> right, for a show. right. You might, you might, you're. I can imagine there might be. There's a good chance that your sponsors call you and they're like, "Yeah, man, we're done. I want all the refunded money that prorated back to us." <laughs> well, well, you know, I, I I agreed. I agreed that we would record a podcast episode <laughs> with you being the guest. I never agreed to publishing it. Okay, I see where this is going now. I see where this is going. <laughs> There's always those those uh, those asterisks. Yes, the small print. You didn't read the small and, print dude, on this, and one. you had to. You had to. <laughs> I don't blame you. I'm not. Uh, I'm not trustworthy. Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll be good. It was a fun bet. I'm glad yeah. we finally got it posted. Sorry it took so long, but yeah, made it happen. I owe you a meme because I won the other bet. So, oh, that's uh, right. That's I actually right. I actually started on one, made one, and then my wife gave it the thumbs down. So I need to do a new one. <laughs> <laughs> Two thumbs down. Yeah, she didn't think it was funny enough. So uh, <sighs> that's funny because my wife thinks uh, a lot of the stuff I do uh, is not funny, but <laughs> I I find it really funny. Right. Which, oh, that's dumb. But then I don't know. Maybe I think maybe our sense of humor are just more superior than our wives. Keep that quiet. She might listen to this one. <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> this is the cooking episode. My wife might. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, we may have to do some editing. Right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, we... Uh, I'm hungry. We're hungry. You've got a couple doughs in the freezer, right? Yep. And I've got, I've got three in the freezer. And uh, I've been trying to put a fourth in there, but struggling. I've been out doe hunting lately and had another issue with my muzzle loader last week, last Man. weekend, just like what happened last year. Like almost the exact same thing with misfires. So I'm about to throw this thing in the river, but uh, I don't know. You know, I'll tell you what, and, and we'll talk a lot about this when we get Hank on, on the air, but I need to step up my wild game cooking game. Yeah, that, I, I'm not good at it. Well, I think uh, we kind of touched on it the first time we had Hank on, but definitely, hopefully today it's, you know, shoot, we spend so much time planning yep. and putting in the time to hunt these deer, kill these deer, get them in the freezer. Uh, it's only right that we should put as much thought and time into making sure we, we cook and eat them as best as possible too, right? That's right. So, yeah, I've been trying to do the same thing, trying to up the game and I'm lucky my, my wife is um, very fortunate that she really likes, you know, trying new things and she's really into venison and wild game and all that kind of stuff. So it's been fun. That's kind of actually um, been a cool thing for us to do together. Um, I've been kind of, you know, she's connected on stuff that I'm into. She goes fishing with me and stuff, does the outdoor thing. Um, but this is an example where I've been trying to get more into something that she's really passionate about, the food side of things. And it's been, it's been cool. So I think uh, I think Hank should have some great ideas for us to help us all get a little better, try some new things, and I think you know I think we both took some things away from our first episode with Hank, um, and we only talked about cooking in that one for like twenty minutes. So today right. we'll get a we'll get a full show uh, just about the cooking and preparing and all that. And there's there's a lot to talk about there. So I'm pretty stoked. Oh yeah. Should we uh, should we just make it happen? Let's do it. All right. Well, we will pause briefly from our word. <laughs> we'll. <laughs> <laughs> You know, 
<laughs> what are we just, okay let's just start over <laughs> yeah let's just start over now a word from our sponsor <laughs> yeah in all seriousness we're gonna take a break for a word from our partners and then we'll give hank a call so let's try it from there <laughs> all right so as promised we need to pause for a word from our partners at sika gear and with us today is whitetail category leader dennis zuck and I wanted Dennis to tell us a little bit more about a new piece of gear that Sitka launched this year called the Shacket. And that's essentially a shirt, jacket, t-shirt, jacket. And I mention this because we're currently running a holiday sweepstakes, as we mentioned last week, in which we're giving away one of these jackets. So Dennis, what is the Shacket? And where did this idea come from? Yeah, you know, and for us, it, it started with, you know, p- putting no boundaries on ourselves and thinking about, you know, who's our guy and what's he doing? And, you know, our guy was, you know, he was archery hunting, um, and he needed all his range of motion. Um, but he also cared a lot about, you know, warmth and, and staying in the stand for a while. You know, so our shacket was, you know, we've all owned a vest, right? We've all owned a jacket. We've all owned, you know, these pieces, you know, and, and somewhere along the line, somebody told you you lose so much heat through your head. Well, you know where you lose a lot also is underneath your arms. And, you know, we started thinking about this idea of creating, you know, keeping those forearms open where typically most of us don't get that cold in our forearms. Um, we're trying to shoot our bow, and but still making sure that we capture that heat that we would be losing in a vest configuration underneath our arms. You know, lo and behold came the shacket. You know, it, it was non-conventional. It, it wasn't something people were used to. But I'll tell you what it's done is it's changed people's idea of, of being warm and how much or how little, in, in that matter, they can wear and still be fairly comfortable in the stand. Um, so it's a piece we're really proud of. We think it uh, it pushes the boundaries, and that's what we think we we try to push the boundaries, and not for the sake of pushing boundaries, um, for the sake of creating better product. So if you are interested in learning more about the Sitka Gear Shacket, make sure you visit sikagear.com. And also, if you want to try to win the one shacket that we're giving away, make sure you go to wiredtohunt.com slash holiday to enter our sweepstakes, which is open until Christmas Eve. And I can say personally, I've worn the shacket on probably 90%, maybe 80% of my hunt so far this year, and it's really become one of my favorite pieces. So it's worth checking out. Now, though, it's time to get Hank Shaw on the line. All right, with us now on the phone, Again, is Hank Shaw. Welcome back to the show, Hank. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, you were uh, you were one of the guests that we got some of the best feedback about. Um, so despite my better judgment, I decided to invite you on again, Hank. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to hear. I always uh, it's better that than people, you know, throwing digital arrows at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh no, we really enjoyed having you uh, having you as a guest back. I think it was episode sixty five, is what is in my head. I think and. Um, that time we did talk, one of the things that stuck with me is that you made three Star Wars references, which is a first for the Wired Hunt podcast, and I really enjoyed that. And so now with Episode 7 of Star Wars coming out this week, i got to ask, are you pretty excited about that? You know, I'm going to see it. I'm, I'm not waiting in line for it, but you know, I'll absolutely watch it. I've seen them all. I've been watching it since I was six years old. Yeah. What about you, Dan? Are you pumped? Um... Am I the only nerd on this podcast? Am I the only one who's really pumped? <laughs> no, I, I have some nerd like nerd tendencies too, but you know, I haven't literally been to a. Th- this is this is going to sound weird, but I haven't been to a movie theater since that whole Cal- Colorado deal. Really? Now yeah. by 
because of that or just by happenstance? Maybe it's subconscious. Wow. Hmm. For me, it's the cost. I mean, yeah. it's got to be a big movie for me to go see it. And Star Wars qualifies. Well, I sneak my my stuff in anyway, so. <laughs> you're, you sneak a bu- box of popcorn in underneath your jacket? Oh, are you kidding? He's got he's got venison jerky. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> hey, back in high school when uh, starter, uh, starter jackets used to be the, the end thing, I could put a whole large pizza under my jacket. You still wear those, Dan, don't you? <laughs> Come on, Mark, duh. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. I just bring a flask of bourbon. That's the key to a good movie right there. Oh, I, I gotta I have that's to make a good an, idea. I have to make a, an admission. I am such a big nerd that I'm going to the opening night showing. At midnight, right? Well it is it's supposed to be the midnight showing, but it's at seven o'clock. So it's like the old man's midnight showing, I guess. <laughs> well, all right. So you're Mark. You do realize I'm going to have to force choke you if you uh, if you, you know, give out spoilers on the <laughs> yeah. Facebook. Yeah, I'll I'll have to hold it in. I've I've heard good things so far. I just saw. Uh, I don't want to read any reviews or like spoilers or anything, but there were like just some like tweets of people who watched the premiere and so far good stuff. So <laughs> this is this is a hunting show. <laughs> <laughs> this is <laughs> you're right. We probably should should move on from this because we already spent like 10 minutes before we got Hank on the phone talking about stupid stuff and now here we are with Star Wars so so would you use a broadhead with for a bantha yeah. or... <laughs> my uh, my guy who edits video who helps me edit my videos for Wired to Hunt he's kind of a nerd too and he like throws random Star Wars references out in his emails to me and my wife helps handle some of my email stuff um, just to kind of filter some things and she saw him he emailed me and he called me a fuzzy headed nerf herder and that's that's an animal in Star Wars, and she's like, what "Wow, in the that's world? a deep that's a deep dive, too." Yeah. <laughs> and I think we should stop, or else we're gonna go down a dark hole here in Star Wars stuff. So, so Hank, you know, like we were talking about a minute ago, um, you know, we're excited to to spend this whole hour, hour and a half here, whatever it's gonna be, just talking about cooking venison, which we've all hopefully been doing a lot now that we're uh, into December, and a lot of us have been hunting for a few months, and should have hopefully some venison in the freezer. So I kind of want to dive into all sorts of things as, you know, as far as cooking, as far as different ways to prepare venison, different ways, different recipe ideas, sauces, marinades, all sorts of kind of stuff on that. Um, but I kind of want to start at the beginning here and, and look at our scenario or sort of our, our setting for this type of thing. And that's the kitchen. So today we're in the kitchen and what I wanted to ask you first, Hank, is let's imagine a hypothetical guy or girl, uh, maybe a stereotypical young bachelor, let's say, who's listening to the show, who hunts but has never really taken his cooking game to the next level. He always just kind of does the basics. He throws some steaks in the grill. He makes Lowry hamburgers. Seasoning. Lowry seasoning. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So for this guy or girl who's, who's not really there yet but is intrigued and interested, I first want to know, what kind of kitchen tools or appliances or something? What do we need to start taking our venison cooking game to the next level from a tool standpoint? Um, you know, do we need cast iron pans? Do we need some special knives or certain pots or certain anything? I don't know. What from that standpoint, just to get us started with the right gear? Uh, we, deer hunters, we like talking about gear. What kind of gear do we need to take our venison game to the next level? That's the first thing I want to know about. It You don't need much. and I, I'm sorry to disappoint the gearheads, but a good frying pan? Uh, either cast iron or stainless steel. Uh, you don't really need a nonstick for venison. In fact, you don't want it because nonsticks don't do well with, with very high heat or with acidic sauces. You're going to want a set of good tongs, metal tongs, 
not the stuff with the rubber or silicone on the end. You want metal tongs to flip things. You want a wooden spoon, ideally two, one to stir with and one that has a flat edge so that you can scrape the bottom of pans with. Uh, the reason why you want it wood and not metal is so you don't ruin your uh, your pans. And you want a Dutch oven or any kind of like a Le Creuset, you know, those big heavy pots with a, with a lid on them. You can do pretty much anything with those two things. I mean, if I were to add beyond that, uh, a very good kitchen knife. Uh, let's see. I would say a roasting pan. Doesn't have to be a big one, but a roasting pan. So for for the uh, culinary um, inept like myself to a degree, a couple of these things. So a roasting pan is just uh, one of those rectangle type pans, right? The sort of deep. Am I right? Exactly. You know, you can get the cheap foil ones in the supermarket. Yeah, uh, you yeah. want a good. You want a good one. You know, one made of of steel or enamel lined or something like something that that you can wash and, and use for years and years and years. I've used mine for fifteen years. Okay. And then the, the Dutch oven. I'm familiar with you know like a cast iron Dutch oven, the big, really heavy, heavy duty type deal. But you mentioned another French word. Um, can ah. can a big pot work, or does it really need to be that thick cast iron type thing? You want something reasonably thick. Le Creuset, C-R-E-U-S-E-T. Yes. That's, it's enamel-coated iron, and it's sort of an indoor kitchen Dutch oven. And they last for generations. I mean, I've, you can pick them up at yard sales or thrift stores. You know, it's usually because the old lady died and the, and the <laughs> thing is still doing well. You know, uh, they just don't, they just don't, they don't go bad. And you can get them cheap or they're good Christmas presents or whatever, but a big, hefty, Steel, iron, enamel pot is good, and you want it heavy because it retains heat better. So you can stew something either in the oven or on the stovetop for a long time at very low heat, and it will maintain. The thinner anything is, the faster it will heat up. But the problem is, the faster it will cool down, and it you want something that can that can hold heat, which is why a great number of cultures will cook in ceramic or in clay. So you mentioned a good cooking knife or good cutting knife or kitchen knife. Um, do we, is there any one single knife? Could I, is there one knife I get away with covering most of the tasks for me, or should I get one of those sets that has like the seven or eight different knives for pairing and all the other stuff? Two knives will do. I mean, we're just talking about cooking now, not not butchering, but yes, two yes. knives will do. A pairing knife and a chef's knife. That's all you need. And the chef's knife is the is the pretty big one, right? It's the one that you stab people with when they break into the house. (laughs) That's what I was thinking in my head. (laughs) That one. Yes, that one. (laughs) All right, perfect. So was there any other other items on the list? I I kind of interrupted you there. Sorry. No, I'm just sort of thinking on the fly. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking what I use every day. You know, I mean, everything I talk about right now is going to be what I use, but it's bonus bonus points. Uh, A sieve, a fine mesh sieve to strain sauces to make them a little bit more refined, which okay. you know, I like to be a little bit more refined. Yeah. Tough then, for Dan, but, but you can do it, pull it off better eh, than Dan. You know, <laughs> a couple of different size pots. Sometimes you want a, something to make a sauce out of. Then, you know, I use what's called a butter warmer. It's a very small steel pot, and that's good for to heat up milk for coffee, but it's also good if you're doing a very small side thing, like a, like a cranberry sauce that you don't need a lot of. Hmm. Um, fish spatula. You can find them on Amazon, and it's a special spatula that's very thin, and the very end of it is sort of a blade. 
it's not a super sharp blade, but it's beveled. And they're used to flip fish, and that's what you can use it for, but it, it is the best spatula that you'll ever use. Hmm. It's, you'll, you, it becomes part of your hand. So just that beveled edge makes it a lot easier to get underneath things or scrape stuff from the bottom if you need to? And yes, and they're angled. So right hand, I, you know, I'm left-handed, so I had to actually special order one because you know people are bigoted against us left-handed people. <laughs> I'm protesting later today. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but most of them are coming right-handed, and they're they're really amazing tools. Interesting. Uh, what about uh, you know, do we? Is it worth? And again, this is you know, I know this is going to come down to just how far you want to go with it. But is it worth for you know? Someone in this type of situation, like we're mentioning, you know, taking the next leap and getting something like a smoker or a green egg or any of these other kind of specialized type things to, to up our game. Is that something that, you know, is worth looking at if you want to really take it to the next level? Or is it can you can you do some of the same things just in your oven? I think a smoker is definitely a valuable, valuable tool. But that's again, that's sort of a, the next level kind of deal. Yeah. How expensive? Hold on a second. Yeah. Uh Fake sneeze. I hate those. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. Happens to the best of us. Can you can you get away with a smoker at a reasonable price? Yes. Uh, what I started with, and when I was that young bachelor, is I used my Weber grill. You know the big, you know the the circular grill that you can just buy at any any store. Mm-hmm. What you do to make it a smoker is you don't put that many pieces of charcoal on one side of it, and you put some wood. And you keep the other half of the circle completely free of charcoal. And you can put one of those cheap foil roasting pans that we just talked about mm-hmm. and put some water in it. And then you put your meat over that so it can drip into the water. And if you're if it's hot out and you really need to keep the temperature cold, then you can, uh, then you can put ice in it. And so you can keep it very, very cold. And obviously the ice will melt, but it keeps that that chamber very very cool so you can you know you could set that up pretty cheap i mean less than a couple hundred dollars no yeah, that's pretty cool idea that's definitely one of the things i've been thinking about is you know trying different types of smoked smoked meats jerkies things on those lines i've been trying to figure out you know the best way to do that um which which I want to specifically ask about that jerky, but before I get to that really quick, I, I kind of want to close out the kitchen, stocking up my kitchen piece I here. A, I got a quick question in regards to, can you get away with not having some of those items and still bring the the meat or the your game to its, I guess, greatest potential as far as flavor is concerned? Well, what item are you thinking about leaving out? Well, I mean, right now I I have very few of those items. I have a saucepan and I have uh, a really a really good set of knives, and that's just about it. You need the pot, okay? Because you know your two fundamental ways of cooking game are hot and fast or slow and low. And if you don't have a good pot like that, you're really behind the eight ball. So I mean, uh, given what you just told me, you know, you've got a saucepan and you got good knives, you need the pot. And then, you know, wooden spoons are $3, so, you know, suck right. it up. I want <laughs> But, I mean, can, can I get – if I, let's say for a guy who has absolutely every one of those products that you mentioned as opposed to a guy who has only got like 50% of the products, uh, those kitchen utensils, 
can, can, can we still get the same flavor and have the same end result in our meat? Sure. It just makes it easier. Gotcha. What about a crock pot? Do you ever use a crock pot or do you just use like a Dutch oven and simulate the same type of slow cooking method? Mostly I use the Dutch oven, but the crock pot or any kind of slow cooker, it really comes into its own if you have a day job. Now, mind you, I, I no longer have a day job. This is what I do for a living. So I can hang around and watch a pot. And it's not like I'm sitting there st- staring at it, but <laughs> you know, I can wander in and make another cup of coffee and like, oh, yeah, it's still good. So, But if you've got to make something like a braised venison shoulder, for example, you're going to want to do that in the crock pot because if you got to go to work all day, you just want to keep it, you know, at a kind of a dull roar. And it's a great, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> do you know the origin of the crock pot? No idea. It's a fascinating story. Uh, I had no idea until recently, but apparently a, an Orthodox Jewish guy said, huh, how the hell am I going to eat on Sabbath? You know, it's because of the Orthodox, <laughs> they can't do anything, right? They can't cook, you know, they can't even yeah. answer the phone. Yeah. So he invented this thing for, I think, beans. And so it was originally a bean pot. And then he would make it before sundown and it would cook until the Sabbath was over, I guess. And then they could sit there and, and they'd have dinner. And wow. one of his goy friends is like, I know, that would be great for, you know, pretty much everything. And so, <laughs> you know, a, a revolution was born in cooking. And it's just, I used to hate on him a lot because, I mean, there's too many times. Okay, I got to tell this one story. This is, it's not venison related, but it's game related. It's hilarious. <laughs> I was right. at an event in South Dakota. And our hosts, I'm going to leave some proper names out of here just to protect the innocent and the guilty. Sure. Uh, and our hosts, uh, were, they were all stoked to give us this fancy pheasant send-off meal. It was like, oh, yeah, this, we got a pheasant tonight. Woo, yeah. We're all excited, you know. Everyone's looking at me like, you know, waiting for, you know, me to heap condemnation on everything. I was very, very polite and and then because I didn't know what they were going to cook. So out it comes. And apparently what they had done is they had thrown several whole but skinned pheasants into a crock pot and dumped cream of mushroom soup over it. Oh, no. And let it cook for I don't know how many weeks. It just (laughs) – it was this brown – and all the bones were in there too. So it's like basically everyone's looking at each other and we – I said under my breath to my – the guy to my left, it's pheasant apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it wasn't a bad joke. It was the real deal, huh? No, it was. It was. It, it was one of the top four worst things I've ever eaten in my life. It was just. It was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> that is an old standby, though, right? Throw some meat in the crock pot with cream mushroom soup, and you're good. Oh, for the low. No, a lot, you're of, not, lot, lot of people. Well, a lot of people said that. <laughs> not good. Just. You know, will you not? Will you die from it? Probably not. But I'm not. I can't. I make no guarantees. It's just. It's an abomination. Yeah, yeah. It's a. It's a fair point. The crockpot, though, like you said, it can come in really handy for some things. Chili, slow cooked soups, stews, braises. It's great for that. Yeah, yeah. And they're not too expensive. Not too expensive at all. It's pretty, pretty cheap tool. Again, uh, thrift stores and uh, and uh, weekend yard sales. Yeah, you have one of those, Dan. I do have a crock pot, and my first question to you is, so I should not cook my venison roast in a crock pot with, like, potatoes and carrots and, and all that. If you wanted to, then then that's kind of a German pot roast style. 
gotcha. you know, you're not going to get a nice roast out of it. You're going to get kind of a pot roasty. That's fine. I would do it with a neck or a shank or a shoulder rather than a hind leg roast. So my issue is that I, I typically overcook my meat in that scenario because you have to I, in a crock pot. I, I time it wrong. Is there is there a way to not cook it all the way and like get a, more of a medium in a crock pot, or is that just what it's for? Cook the crap out of it. Uh, yeah, the latter. You know, okay. it's, I, you know, it's not possible to really. I mean, I suppose it, theoretically it could be possible, but it's more trouble than it's worth. Don't don't even try it. It's but, just, it's cooked the crap out of it. But the key with that, correct me if I'm wrong, Hank, but, you know, from my experience with a crock pot or slow cooker, right, is is you do cook the crap out of it, but because you do it for so long and so slow that it actually does become really tender and great because you cooked it for so long and it's such a low heat. And so even though you're not, you know, there's, like you said, there's hot and fast, which keeps, you know, kind of you want it medium rare or whatever, but then this is the other way, cook it forever for a really slow period of time, and then you also still get really tender, juicy meat with as long as you put liquid and stuff in there, right? Oh, precisely, precisely. I mean, in fact, the uh, the the uh, in fact, the recipe I have on my website right now is a braised venison shoulder that has a Mexican mole with it, and that's that's how I cook the venison. It's just very very slow, and then eventually, it just all that connective tissue just melts, and it makes everything silky and and super super tender. It's you know, it's it'll it will change the way that you look at these parts of the animal if you if you start cooking this way. Yeah, we we actually, my wife and I actually use your venison barbacoa, excuse me, venison barbacoa recipe this Saturday with a neck roast that we use a crock pot just to slow cook it all day, and that turned out pretty delicious. Oh yeah, just shred that puppy and put it on a tortilla, and you're good to go. That was money. It was great. We we went hunting in the evening, came back and had some tasty venison tacos. So, so last kitchen question that I had, at least if I can take a step back is we've got the tools that we need, the key essential tools. What about key spices? What are the mandatory minimum spices or herbs or something like that, that I should have on hand if I want to be able to tackle some of these next level preparations? Hold on. God bless you. Yeah. God bless you. It's a good one. The minimum spices that you want are going to be salt, pepper, and in my opinion, celery seed. Hmm. The reason why you, I want celery seed is because celery seed sprinkled on a roast or a backstrap steak right near the end makes the meat taste more of itself. It's a it's one of those secrets that we learned. In the, I used to work at a steakhouse, and that was our kind of our secret. It was in our mix that we would grind over the meat as it was resting. And it's it's a there's your there, there's your secret for the day. Is is that the same as celery salt? I think I've heard of celery salt. Is that a thing? Uh, celery salt is a thing, but celery seed is different. Okay. So don't use the latter. <laughs> yeah, you want to use celery seed. They're tiny, tiny, tiny little seeds that you that you can just you can just sprinkle a few of them on uh, along with your salt and pepper, and your and that you'll notice the difference and you'll like it. Okay. I know it, I know it probably makes a difference uh, of what type of meat or cut you're actually cooking, but is there – you said on that particular instance you're sprinkling the salt and pepper and celery seed towards the end of the, of the process. Is that what you want to do with game, season it towards the, the very end, or are we seasoning it some, some cuts at the beginning while the meat is still raw? 
it all everything is different, but salt is different from everything else too. You have to remember. So salt is your is your basic seasoning. I salt early and often. So when the meat comes out, I very rarely cook cold meats. I mean, there are exceptions that we can get into, but in general, I will take a piece of meat out and let it come to room temperature. And when it comes out of the fridge, I salt it, and that does two things: that that uh, protects it from the warming temperatures, and it starts to season the meat right off the bat. And then I will cook it, and then I will season it at the end. You now, if it's uh, slow cooked, like the shoulder or the neck or something, do the same thing. Then you brown it, and then you make your braise or your stew or whatever, and then you season that, and then you let it cook for however long it's going to cook. And then you season it a third time right before you, right before you serve it. But pepper and celery seed and any other spices that you want to use, they're all for the most part pretty volatile. So, for example, just try this. Make a stew and put as much pepper as you want in at the beginning. Now, make the same stew and put as much pepper as you want at the end you will notice a radical difference. Pepper is extremely volatile, which is why I never buy pre-ground pepper. It's lost almost everything. You want a, a, the, the cheap, easy answer for good pepper is to buy those pepper mills that you just, the pepper's already in the mill and you just grind it as you, you know, you, can, you don't have to buy a pepper mill. Do that. There, you know, every tiny little market I've ever seen has them. And just buy that, and you're you'll be shocked. Oh, this is why this is why there was a spice trade. This is why people went to war over black pepper. <laughs> and you know, if you get a pre-ground, you're like, eh, I don't get it. So you're saying that the grinder, the pepper grinder, is really makes a big difference. You get the little peppercorns in there, and you grind it up yourself. A huge difference. Wow, that's an interesting idea. That's something we don't have. Yeah, it's a huge difference. Hmm. What? Hey, while we're on the topic of spicing your food and flavoring it. So my wife, you know, gives the typical excuse, uh, you know, this is too gamey for me. I'm not a fan of it because it's too gamey, whatever. And then me, I, I love the, you know, I love the, the gamey taste, I guess you, if we're going to call it that, is there a way to meet in the middle or is there, is it just one of these things where it's either you like it or you don't? I'd be interested to sort of, interrogate your wife about this whole gamey thing because you know i hear it all the time and and i'm assuming that you know how to take care of your your venison i'm assuming that you didn't drive around a truck for three days looking you know hey look at my deer you know i'm assuming <laughs> you i'm assuming you took care of it that's so, what it was oh man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no uh okay uh, <laughs> yes that's I mean, if presumably, if you know, if it's aged well and it was treated well, and you cooled down the carcass, if if the meat's treated well, it it doesn't taste gamey at all. You know, there's no gamey to me is a high taste. It's a kind of an it's a funky taste. It's it's like ruffed grouse have it in spades. Ruffed grouse are one of the the gamiest, you know, game animals I've ever eaten. Woodcock are sort of similar, but. Virtually nothing else has that funk unless you age the heck out of it. And, you know, most of us don't do that with venison. So what is she getting at? I think she's getting at either a minerality that is in fresh venison. It is more uh, coppery irony 
than a comparable piece of beef, and that's largely because it's free of all fat. And the other thing that's going on is because it's free of all fat or most fat, what she's keying off of and what, what most people are keying off of uh, is the profile flavors of corn because everything we eat in a supermarket ate corn. Pigs, definitely cattle, and definitely chickens are all heavily fed on corn. And that creates a very specific flavor profile that if you've been eating it for your whole life, which most people have, everything that is not that flavor profile is they, the only word they have in the vocabulary for it is gamey. And, and it's not. It's misnomer. It just tastes like venison. It tastes like something that's not corn. And people kind of get hung up on it, and they just have to get over it. I mean, animals don't all taste like corn, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, I mean, it's it, it tastes of what it is. Yeah, it seems like gamey is just one of those labels that people throw on anything that doesn't taste like beef. It's kind of what I kind of see from so many people. Like, oh, it tastes gamey. They're just saying, oh, it just doesn't taste like the red meat I usually eat. I think is what I hear from a lot of people at least. Precisely. Now, I mean, here's an example. Uh, lamb. Lamb is gamey. And you know why lamb is gamey? It's not fed on corn. <laughs> hmm. You know, uh, here's a weird one that'll throw you. Kid goats and lamb. Kid goat, you would think, would be way more gamey. Absolutely not. Kid goat is one of some of the most mild, sweet. It's almost like pronghorn. Like if, you, if you've ever had a really nicely treated pronghorn antelope, it's like kid goat, whereas a lamb, it's got a stink on it. You know, even I mean, even young lambs. I I, I can absolutely tell if you're cooking lamb in the house. Speaking speaking of pronghorn, I've heard some people say that pronghorn is awful, and then I've also heard a couple people say it's their favorite game meat in the world. What do you think, Hank? Is it pretty good? What it's all it? preparation. It's you know, it, it can be both. And and here's the thing, antelope. I've shot a bunch of antelope. Antelope, you often shoot them in hot weather. Well, that's a problem because antelope's hides retain heat way better than a deer's hide does. Second, antelope are nervous animals. I mean, I don't know if you ever shot one, but you mm-hmm. shoot them, you think poorly of them, and they fall over and die. And they're just like, <laughs> oh, I'm dead. Boom. And they, they just watch any of the TV shows. They're like, oh, that one ran, and it ran like nine steps and died. You know, they just die. I mean, that's what they do. And... So, I mean, because they're very nervous animals. I mean, you notice like trout are nervous animals, shad are nervous animals. Certain certain fish will just die as soon as you just take them out of the water. Whereas like a catfish, you can have a conversation with it for three hours and then sort of put it back in the water and be like, hey, see you later. <laughs> you know, and so and so you have those things going against you if you're an antelope hunter. What you need to do is you drop your animal, take your hero shot, gut the animal in the field, which is important, and then get it out of the skin as fast as possible. Almost nobody does that. If you do that, it is some of the sweetest, most beautiful, light-colored, fantastic meat ever. But it can go off in a heartbeat. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen guys riding around in a truck. Because here's what other what also happens. Maybe the three of us go antelope hunting. And well, I'm in the truck, so I'm going to make it sure it's okay. But if it wasn't me, it was three guys in a truck. <laughs> they're typically going to shoot three antelope, and they'll, they'll pile them in the truck ungutted and it's September in Wyoming and it's maybe 80 degrees maybe it's 70 degrees and and that meat's going to go off in a heartbeat and that's why people say that pronghorn is disgusting Hmm. 
Well, that's that's good news for Dan because when Dan and I were driving home from our elk hunting trip this past year in Idaho, we drove through Wyoming, and I swear, Hank, every thirty seconds, Dan was like, "Oh, look in that field! Oh, look in that field! There's more pronghorn! Oh, look at all those antelope! Oh, we gotta come hunt these antelope! I gotta go pronghorn hunting for like two hours." We drove through the Green River Valley, and that's all he could talk about. So, hey, I'm a flatlander. Yeah, I don't see antelope. <laughs> oh, antelope live in flatland. They're plains animals, but they're western plains. But, but yeah. I'm. But I'm in Iowa. The okay, Midwestern we have, Flatlander. We have, we have white tails and squirrels. White and white tails. Yeah. Yep. And, yeah. And turkeys. And turkeys. So here's another here, I'm going off on tangents here, but now that we're talking about pronghorn, if I'm a if I'm a tried and true deer hunter, let's say I'm Dan, I live in Iowa and there's just white tails and squirrels. <laughs> um <laughs> if I want to, you know, if you could just pick one new hunt for me to go on. Specifically, just because I want to get like the best wild game, different than what I'm currently eating, which is a lot of whitetail. If I could just choose one new hunt, specifically just for the food standpoint, what would you recommend on that side of things? Big game or small game? Uh, I'd like to hear both. Small game, rough grouse. The rough grouse hunting is not only super incredibly fun, uh, the the flavor of that bird is... I think that might be one of my deathbed meals is a, is a roughed grouse <laughs> or a blue grouse, uh, in the Western mountains, you know, plucked and roasted and, you know, with all the trimmings, big game, you know, you could do worse than pronghorn. I mean, it's a ton of fun. You can do it as a DIY hunt. There's lots of over the counter tags, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun to go out and do. And, you know, you can usually get a buck and a doe tag, and come home with a couple of pronghorn on a DIY hunt on a, on a public land, and you know you put in four or five days, and and if you go to like northern Wyoming, you're gonna get your antelope. Yeah, that does look. That's something I do want to do. It looks like fun, and it, I'd, I'd be really interested to try. I've never I've never eaten it before, so have to make it happen someday. They're not big. You know, like, uh, you know, I mean, Dan, you live in Iowa, so you're, you're in the land of the giants. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're like a, a big antelope buck is eh, 120, 140. That's a big one. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about the average might be the size of my dog. <laughs> <laughs> what, you, you're running a mastiff? I got a lab. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if, the big, if the big one's 120, maybe an average is, what, 90 pounds and something like that? About 100, 110. Yeah. Okay. And then the does are, are about 100, a little okay. less. Well, fill both tags in, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, nice. Well, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. You, you, do, you do have to be good at shooting, though. I, mean, I know a lot of you guys in the East are like, I took this amazing shot. It was 225 yards. And, <laughs> you know, the pronghorn's not crazy to shoot 400 yards. You Western guys are crazy. I can't imagine some of these shots that guys out there take. I, I mean, I'm not even a, I'm a kind of an average shot. And I, I I'll have routinely taken 300 plus yard shots. Wow. Yeah. If, uh, if I ever do go out there for that type of thing with a rifle hunt, I, <laughs> I'll have some work to do. That's for sure. So back to meat, um, or cooking meat at least versus the hunting of the meat. Um, we started getting some different cuts there cause you were talking about roasts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about just running through a bunch of the different types of cuts that we'll you know, be able to get out of our deer. And yeah, I'd be interested in hearing some of your different ideas, you know, high level. Okay. You know, with a venison roast, you could do X 
and then um, and then I might have some questions. We can go into the detail of how to do the best job with that or different cool things on each. But I guess maybe with roast, let's start there, Hank. Um, what are your recommended ways of handling a venison roast? Maybe we've got a neck roast or a shoulder roast or something like that. Um, we talked a little bit about the crock pot idea, but is there anything else that you'd recommend that we consider? Um, any any tips on that? Well, if you start with, you know, there's a kind of the triumvirate of, of sinewy, gristly stuff, the shanks, the neck, and the shoulder. So all of them have lots of different muscles in that same group and lots of connective tissue. And unless it's a gigantic animal, there's not a lot you can do in terms of cutting out single muscle steaks or roasts out of them. So they're dealt with as kind of agglomeration meats, you know. And my favorite thing to do actually with all of them is to cook them whole. So, you know, I didn't shoot a very big deer this year. I shot a little forky blacktail. And so <laughs> the front shoulder was just barely fit into my roaster pan. <laughs> and so I decided to, to braise the whole shoulder. And if you get whitetail does, it's the same deal, you know, or a little button buck. A whole braised shoulder is a wonderful thing to to cook because you have all of that connective tissue and it cooks off the bone and you get the tenderness and the it doesn't dry out and all you need is time on that. Same thing with a neck roast, same thing with a shank. You should never ever take the meat off your shanks. You know, you always keep your shanks whole or if they're gigantic, uh, saw them into asabuco rounds, which is a cross cut of the shank about three inches thick. You know, you do that with a big bruiser whitetail or with a with a big animal like an elk or a moose. All of those should just be cooked like crock pot or in a Dutch oven until the meat falls off the bone. And that's your general that's where your highest purpose for all of that. So with that, let's say we've got a shoulder, like you mentioned, we can fit the whole thing in our Dutch oven. We're gonna braise it, slow cook it like you mentioned. Um, can you walk us through specifically, you know, how how do you think we should be you know seasoning it? Can you walk us through basically how would we do that in more detail for for the people like us that have no idea what we're doing? There's a million ways to go about it, but the structure is typically the same. Not always, but typically. Typically, you're going to want to brown the meat first, and if it's a whole piece of meat like a big neck or a shoulder or something that you can't fit in your your saute pan, then what you do is you stick it in your roasting pan and you crank the heat up to like 450 and you brown it in the oven. That's what we do in restaurants. It's like when we've got a lot of meat to brown for a stew, you throw it in the oven. I'm not going to stand in front of a frying pan for two hours browning meat when you can get it done in an hour in a hot oven. So once your meat is browned, why do you brown it? You brown it because that's called the Maillard reaction and it's the crust on bread. It's the You know, it's any kind of crispy brownness. And humans are hardwired to like crispy brownness. If you don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. You have some genetic genetic deficiency, but everybody likes crispy. Everybody likes that kind of browned meat thing. And that's how you get get that. And that carries through even though it's no longer going to be crispy because you're stewing it or braising it. That that flavor carries through. So that's why you brown meats first. Obviously, you've salted it, and it goes into your pan that you're going to braise with. Now, the first thing you do is you take that, remember that flat wooden spoon I was telling you to get? Mm-hmm. So you pour some water into wherever it is that you brown the meat. And then you use that flat wooden spoon to scrape all of the brown bits off the bottom of the pan or the roasting pan. And you pour that over the meat. 
you typically will then throw in some booze, wine, bourbon, beer, something like that, maybe a cup, a bottle, however much you want. And you, you have to boil the hell out of it because you don't want to cook it with the alcohol in and uh, boiling burns off most of the alcohol. Is that what The reason why you would do that is if you're doing wine, you're adding acidity and it helps with a more balanced set of flavors because a, a proper dish has a balance of sweet, savory, acidic, a little bit of bitter, a little bit of salty. So I mean, there's the, sort of the five tastes that are on your tongue. You want to recognize that and make your dish accordingly. And so if, for if I might, for yep. sorry, we're trying to achieve these five different types of flavors. Is that something you're trying to achieve in a single dish or in the meal? So like, should it be just in the roast or is that, could that be the, the roast and the potato and the veggie or something like that? It's a good question. It's your choice is the answer. Uh, so if it's a one pot meal, it should be in that pot, but it doesn't have to be in the pot the whole time. So I'll, I'll, I, I will, all will be revealed. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've, but if you've added acidity through wine, then you don't need any more necessarily in the dish. But, but what if you use beer? Beer isn't very acidic. Or what if you use bourbon? Bourbon's not very acidic. That just adds flavor. So then you need broth or water. You've got some water because you've just scraped the bottom of the roasting pan. A braise is a big piece of meat that is not completely covered by the liquid. A stew or a soup, and incidentally, a, a stew are many pieces of meat that are submerged. A soup is really a broth that has a little bit of meat in it. So the, the difference between a soup and a stew is that in a stew, the things that are in the broth are the star. and In a soup, the broth is the star. Hmm. And so with all of those, you know, in a, in a braise, you know, you're eventually going to serve large pieces off that whatever. You know, either a whole shank or a giant chunk of you know neck, or just a big old slab of that shoulder. Or as if you made a, a stew, you might want to use a hind leg, because the hind leg, you can get cleaner pieces of meat that don't have sinew in them. And so then when you bite into it, you don't have that kind of thing. Like you know, you know, we've all done that, right? You know, there's a venison stew, and oh, that's a great piece, and the next piece is not so great. That's usually a function of connective tissue, which you did not cook it long enough for it to break down. So how long do you cook it? You cook until it's done. I mean, if it's a yearling, bottenbach or something like that, it could it might only take 90 minutes. But if you've got, you know, Mr. Big Rack or God help you, uh, a bull moose or a bull elk, which can live to 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, 15 years old, you know, you'll be there a while. Uh, <laughs> but it'll get tender. Everything gets tender. just takes time. The worst I ever had, the worst, a rooster of all things. <laughs> I've cooked I don't know how many different kinds of animals. And the, the only animal that almost beat me was a, it was like a five or a six-year-old rooster. That thing took eight and a half hours to get tender. Like a pheasant rooster or a – No, no, a rooster rooster. Rooster rooster. <laughs> yeah, I have Italian neighbors and – they used to like randomly knock on my door and say, oh, it is time for you to kill the chickens. <laughs> like, all right, Dominic, I'll be over. And so wow. the, there was this one big old nasty rooster. And I just walked in there and it was in like, they have like, their, their, their coop is like Thunderdome. It's like, it's devastated inside by all the birds. <laughs> you know? 
and it's caged up and the birds can't fly out and it's like two men enter one man leaves and so i I finally cornered this chicken and grabbed it and rang its neck and and my friends were standing out there watching the the show were uh, their eyes were as big as saucers and i looked at it and like look 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 at that rooster that thing had three inch spurs on it i could have died (laughs) yikes (laughs) but anyway we digress yeah. Wow. So you you're you're boiling off the alcohol, but then after that you're you're bringing the heat way down low, right? To just a simmer. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. And then you just keep on rolling until you can start pulling it apart, probably. Right. That's how you can yep. tell that it's done. And typically, the, the what stays in there the longest are the meat itself, because that's what you're really waiting on. And then I usually have kind of a, a you know onions and garlic and and oil. Yeah, you know, I cook some onions and garlic in there as well, and and have that cooking the whole time. And you add stuff to a braise or a stew in the order that it's going to work, right? So you're, you assume your venison's going to take two hours, maybe two and a half, maybe three. So you don't want to put potatoes and carrots and things in there three hours in because they're going to disintegrate unless that's what you want, which is sort of the, that's the theory behind a Kentucky burgoo is, you know, you cook everything together and it just gets completely hammered and it tastes great, but it's just, hmm. it's just a different way to do things. Wow. Um, Typically, though, you'll wait for the last 90 minutes, and then you'll throw in, like, your root vegetables, and then you'll throw in stuff that's a little bit more tender. And then finally, you're throwing in at the very end, like, I don't even cook it. I just let the heat of the stew finish it. Things like parsley or thyme or herbs like that where that are very soft and very, you know, they can go easily turn army green. Uh, like if I wanted to put, like, kale or turnip greens or something, I'd put those in maybe 10 minutes before I'm, I'm serving. Interesting. That sounds pretty good. I'm liking uh, I'm liking the idea here because that just probably is hitting me because I'm really hungry right now and it's about dinner time and I haven't eaten yet. Yeah, I mean, like, so let's say if you crockpotted it, let's say you're going to work, you throw, you know, you've you you're thrown everything in, the onions, the meat, the booze, the broth, and it's you've you browned everything, you cooked off, and then it's it goes in the crockpot, then you go to work. So you probably have a good 30, 40 minutes of work to do before you get it to the crockpot. And then, yeah, probably 40 minutes. And then you get it, you come home, and then the second you come home, you throw in your root vegetables. Then you pop open a beer, you talk to, you know, talk to your wife, pet the kids or play with the pets <laughs> or the opposite. I don't know what you guys do, have kids, I don't have kids. So, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then by the time that, you know, you're done with that, then your root vegetables are done, then just throw in your, your green things and then wait 10 minutes, you're good to go. Nice. Sounds simple enough. Yeah, it has endless variations too. Is there is there any other completely different way to think about doing a roast other than that basic slow cook uh, in a crock pot or a, or a Dutch oven or something? Yes, hind leg roasts. Um, I only cut single muscle hind leg roasts. So what I do is I, I take a hind leg apart like a book. It's called seam butchery. We talked a little bit about it last time. Yep. And it's it's all about respecting the individual muscles of the hind leg and working with them as individual muscles. And if you do that, you don't have to deal with, you know, the infamous leg steak or the uh, or or the fact that you have connective tissue running right through the center of your roast, which is utterly changes the game. If you don't have that, then you can cook a roast more or less like a steak. So here's what I do with, let's just say, the rump roast, which is that big rectangular one that you'll get. It's one piece of muscle. 
all you have to do is you is you bring it to room temperature. And the reason I do that is because if you don't do that, the outside of that meat is going to be much more cooked than the center. And you get what's called black and blue. And some people like it, but I don't. So you salt the meat. Actually, here's what I do. All right, here, I've got the roast. And I take the roast out of the fridge. I coat it with some oil. And then I salt it. And then I let it sit there for a half an hour. I turn, or I'll turn the oven on and then just pop it right in the oven, cold oven. And then by the time it gets to be 300 degrees, which is what I set it at, you're good to go. Just all, that's all you do. You just sit in there. If you really are concerned about uh, excess browning, you can set the roast, you can set the roast up on celery sticks to keep it up off the bottom of the roasting pan gets a little better air circulation that way. I do this with birds. Hmm. And then you cook it at uh, 300 degrees until the interior of that roast. Oh, here's another piece of equipment we I forgot about. A thermometer. You need a meat thermometer. Yeah. And you wait until that thermometer hits about 115. Then you take the roast completely out of the oven. And now you jack the oven up to 450. And you, it's going to take a couple of minutes. It'll probably take 15 minutes or so for your oven to go the extra 150 degrees. When it does, you put the meat back in the oven and brown it that way. And then when that, when it's brown, which should take 10 minutes, 15 minutes at that temperature, then you let it rest for a solid 10 to 15 minutes. And when you do that, here's a trick. You take the internal temperature right as you're resting it. It's going to climb about 10 degrees. It'll climb 15 degrees if it's a giant roast, but typically a roast is going to be 5 to 10 degrees rise. If you're low, let's say it's 120 and you want it to be 135, which is a good medium rare, tent it. It will gain more temperature because you're holding in the heat. Do you, do you guys know about this, how carryover heat works? I wouldn't say so. At least I don't. <laughs> okay. So here's why you cook low first and then hot second. If you cook hot first to brown and then finish it up in the oven, it works. But the problem you have is you have a shitload of carryover heat on the outside of the meat and the interior does not have that. So the way carryover works is that it's, it is – the exterior of that meat could be 400 degrees, but the interior is 115 and carryover as in that resting process is a redistribution of meat within the roast or redistribution of heat within the roast. So what you get is that 400 on the outside equalizes with 110 or 115 in the center and you finally end up with 135 or 140 in the center instead of 115 and the outside is much cooler as well. That's why hot things have more carryover heat. Big things have more carryover heat. Lean meat has more carryover heat. When that that that's you're talking venison in that case because fat is an insulator, and beef has quite a bit of it. If you, but venison doesn't, so it will tend to have at least a degree or two degrees more carryover heat than a comparably sized roast of beef. So there's it's it's there's science in here. You know, it's tricky to, to some extent, but um, your general rule is hot second. Because that you get more precision that way, and then God help you if you don't rest your your roast, because otherwise, all of the molecules are bouncing around in that in that roast, 
the second you take it out of the oven. And if you cut it at that moment, you basically have a Niagara Falls of juices. Mm-hmm. So when you said to tent it afterwards to even out that heat, that was after you take it out, tent it, and you rest it with the tent, right, with aluminum foil? Yes, if it's a little low. If it's not a little low, if you're like you're exactly 10 degrees below where you want it to be, don't tent it. And just let it sit 10 minutes, right? Just let it sit 10 minutes. All right. Man, I, I always struggle with the rest. I know that you're supposed to do it, and so I've been doing it more and more, but it always just seems counterintuitive to me. It's going to be cold, but I know I know, I just need to resist and let it rest. So I've, I'm trying, Hank. I'm trying. Here, here's what you should do. When you take the meat out of the oven, then start making your pan sauce. It will force you to rest 10 minutes. Hmm. That's a good idea. Speaking of sauces, um, and, and I've, you know, tangents. We're all about tangents here. <laughs> That's <laughs> what a conversation is. Yeah, yeah. It's sauces. What about? What are some of your recommended sauces for for this type of thing for for roasts and stuff like that? Well, you can't go wrong with gravy. Um, you guys know how to make a good gravy. I actually do know how to make a gravy. I don't know if it's a good gravy, but uh, it's a gravy. Is it a wow. flour a flour and uh, butter gravy, or is it a basically? Is it a cor- yeah. Okay. We throw some flour and make a sort of roux, right? Yep. Some, yep, some yep. milk. You could do a milk gravy. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of milk gravy, but that's just a pers- personal preference. Let's just let's take it a different way. Let's do a very typical pan sauce, something that I do on a weekly basis, either with venison uh, backstrap. I can do it with a roast, uh, and I do it a lot with ducks. So, okay, you're done cooking it. The meat's resting. You've got all this fat in the pan. Or if you don't, you add enough to have two tablespoons. You mince up a shallot or a white onion. And I mean mince, I cut it small. And then you cook it in that fat. Then when it's mostly cooked, you're going to want to take maybe a clove or two cloves of minced garlic and add that. Cook it for one minute. Then pour in, I like either port wine or red wine. You could go bourbon. You could go a malty dark beer. Something with some character in it, and then cook that off. You know, boil it until it's almost sticky. And one one way to tell that is the entire surface of the pan will be bubbles. There'll be no part of the pan that that is appearing to be still. Mm-hmm. So you're not then, stirring it, huh? You're not stirring it. Okay. Then you throw in. I like to cook down stock. I make my own venison stock, and I'll cook it down until it's concentrated. And I'll throw a cup of that in, and I'll boil that. And while it's boiling, I'll usually throw in a tablespoon or two tablespoons of either wild berry syrup or a wild berry jelly. Don't do jam. Uh, And why would you do that? Because sweetness and berries uh, go really, really well with venison. And as it happens, pretty much every berry that we forage for, deer also eat. And it's a it's kind of a truism that if uh, if the animal eats it, you could eat it with the animal. Hmm. So you've got a little sweetness, you've got a little booze, you've got a little bit of stock to add some savory. You've got the onions and, and the garlic in there. You got a little bit of fat. You boil that until you can. You remember your your wooden spoon with a flat edge on it. You're gonna use it one more time. You're gonna scrape that across the middle of the boiling stuff, and if it leaves a trail. That takes a second or so to to you know disappear. You're ready, and you can serve it like that. 
But what I do is I'll turn the heat off and I'll put maybe a tablespoon of butter in there and swirl it around. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry. Right. I think uh, I think maybe I've tried that sauce before, maybe one of your other recipes online. I think maybe that was included because that sounds really familiar. Yeah, um, it's, it's a standard structure that I use all the time. Yeah. Damn. I accidentally made a good gravy once, and it was <laughs> your standard flour gravy, but then I uh, – I added like a couple uh, spoonfuls of apricot jelly and it worked. It tasted really good and I've never been able to replicate it again. In, in a gravy? In a gravy, yeah. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> Basically, Boom. you're making you're making kind of, <laughs> yeah, I know. You're making a kind of an, uh, a, a roux based sauce espagnol if you wanted to get, you know, that's, that's what I was going for. Right. Really. <laughs> <laughs> wow. A little bit of tomato paste is another good idea, too. Huh. You, you mentioned uh, – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean you make that regular gravy, the regular brown gravy with the roux and the stock and everything. Throw one spoonful of tomato paste and it, it'll, it'll – you'd be surprised at how good that is. Hmm. You mentioned stock there. You make your own venison stock. How do yeah. you do that? And, and, and is, is it that much better than anything else? You know, I do it because uh, I don't live in whitetail country, so they're, uh, I'm lucky if I get two deer a year. And I want to get the most out of every animal that I bring home. So, and I butcher all my own animals myself. So I have all the bones. You need bones and you need a little bit of meat to make a good stock. So what I do is I will take leg bones, you know, and this is, I get, I get asked this question a lot from whitetail hunters because, oh, what if I live in an area that has chronic wasting disease? Well, in that case, if you have not tested your, uh, if you've not tested your, your deer, then I would only use the leg bones because if your deer happens to have that rogue protein in it, chances are it's going to be either in the spinal column or in the, the, the head. So I wouldn't use anything from the pelvis to the head. And you roast those bones. And I also add, to make it a better stock, maybe I you know bits of ribs, maybe the meat between the ribs, all that weird sinew that you trim off. All of that goes great in the stock. You know, it's a way to not waste anything. I mean, you should see, I mean, there's, when I'm done with a deer, what's left in the trash, it doesn't even fill a one-gallon bucket. <laughs> you know, because it can all be used. Then you just roast that the same way you'd roast meat for a, for a braise. And then you, you know, you basically cover it with water. And then you cook it very, very, very slowly for as long as you can stand it. A minimum of four hours, and I and I generally go overnight. And then after that, you just filter it out and store you it. Can't. After that, usually I put in vegetables, and I let that cook for another ninety minutes, and then I filter it. And then uh, you can it can keep in the fridge for a week to ten days, then the freezer for kind of a year or so, or you can pressure can it for a year. And then that's what you're using when you're making a pot roast or something, right? For your for your broth, you're just putting that venison stock in there. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I like that idea. I love the idea of of using that from an old deer to from a past deer to cook another deer, um, yep. or maybe the same deer. Shoot, who knows? That's pretty cool. Um, how about another cut of of, uh, of venison of deer? What about well, I don't know if you call it a cut, but what about our ground venison? There's the standards, make burgers, um, and then there's a whole ton of other ways to use ground. 
What are some of your favorite ways to use ground venison? I'd love to dive into some of those. But before we get to that, Hank, we need to pause for just a minute or two to thank our sponsors of this podcast episode, Redneck Blinds. And last week we heard from Sean Luchtel of Heartland Bowhunter about how redneck hay bale blinds have changed his hunting. And I thought today I'd share just a couple quick examples of how those blinds have changed my hunting and how I've been able to utilize them in the field. Now, I personally first tried a hay bale blind from redneck this spring while turkey hunting. And good things start happening pretty quickly as that very first morning I hunted from one, I killed a nice gobbler that had no idea it was there. Then the next afternoon, actually, I was able to call in another tom to that same blind right in close while my dad, myself, and my friend Josh all were in the blind. And my dad was able to kill that tom, which was actually his very first turkey. So that was just an awesome experience to share with my dad. Now, fast forward to this October, and me and Josh were in that blind again. And we had a great hunt and killed a doe just 15 yards away that had no idea we were there again. I think that's the coolest thing about these blinds. They are so dark inside, no deer can see you. And being a hay bale, they simply blend in with what deer are used to. So, you know, in short, I've been pretty darn happy with these blinds. It's a blast to hunt from being on the ground and knowing that you're going to be so well concealed. Uh, makes for a great hunt. So if you're interested in trying out one of these redneck hay bale blinds, as I mentioned last week, we've got a special deal for you. From now through the end of 2015, you can get $200 off your purchase of the Sportsman hay bale blind. That's $200 off if you use the promo code WIRED. That's W-I-R-E-D. Use the promo code WIRED at checkout. So visit redneckblinds.com and use promo code WIRED to get $200 off. Now, let's get back to Hank, who's going to fill us in on his favorite ideas for ground venison. I think probably the uh, the, the ways that I that I might do that maybe not everybody else does, because everybody does meatloaf and everybody does burger, everybody does chili. Um, I really like meatballs, and I make lots and lots of different kinds of meatballs, uh, and it's because meatballs are A, fun to eat, and B... Pretty much every culture that eats meat eats meatballs. And even the cultures that don't eat meat eat things that look like meatballs. <laughs> Fair enough. And so you could go Japanese, you could go Middle Eastern, you could go Italian, you could go Greek, you could go German, you go Swedish meatballs, you could go British. You know, virtually every culture, you know, there's albondigas in Mexico. Virtually every culture that they all have a meatball and it all works with ground venison. And it's a really good way to use up. Tons and tons of. I mean, in fact, ground my ground venison typically goes before my backstrap. Hmm. Wow. So, how you any keys to a good meatball? Fat. You can't do it without fat. I mean, you can, but they suck. Um, I've had you know. Oh well, you could just put like an egg and some breadcrumbs. You could, but they're just not nearly. You know, that's a pale shadow of what a meatball really should be. So when you say fat. How exactly are we putting the fat in there? Are you just saying we should have pre-ground our, our venison with fat, or are we adding something additional afterwards when we're actually making the meatball? I would say you should have pre-ground your venison with fat. Uh, and I choose pork fat, but some people do beef fat. Uh, I'll also toss in a little bit of venison fat for flavor. But uh, if you didn't, if you had fatless ground venison, which is a sad thing, um, then, yeah, I would ground up some bacon. And if you don't have a meat grinder handy, just chop up some bacon and throw it in a, in a food processor, buzz it until it's quasi a paste, and then throw that in there. You got to have some fat, otherwise it's just it's just going to taste weird. And then from there, we're basically rolling up some 
some ground meat into balls and we're just toss them in the oven or is there well you know you've got <laughs> spices you can put in you've got and, and a, you know a good meatball virtually every culture's meatball has a uh, a bread product or something in like it either rice flour or breadcrumbs or uh bread soaked in milk uh you know something like that barley i've seen that uh because it, it it's sort of counterintuitive you would think that it would be a, a better meatball if it was all meat but for whatever reason they tend to be a little bit leaden and a little bit um, like, you know, bullets. When you have uh, breadcrumbs or some kind of a bread product in, they're much lighter and fluffier, and they're much more fun to eat. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned uh, a second ago, my mind's going here, because you mentioned meatloaf as one of the standards that so many people try with ground venison. And growing up, I like hated meatloaf. Meatloaf was a, just sounded nasty, and every time I tried it, it was kind of gross. Um I had the same thing. Yeah, but I tried your recipe, and I now love it. Like, that is one of my top couple things that I get excited about us cooking is that venison meatloaf recipe. How do you make a meatloaf that doesn't suck? You don't think of it as a meatloaf. You think of it as a giant meatball. And if you think of it as a giant meatball, you know, with the bread in it, with some vegetables in it, with some, uh, you know, some seasoning already in it, but the key is that you know, and it is to is to work that mixture so that you get a bind, and then slow cook it, and think of it like a meatball, and you're good to go. I mean, I've had oh god, I've had some really dreadful meatball or meatloaves in my time, and it's it's usually because they didn't put enough fat in it, it it, it didn't bind, it got crumbly, dry, uh, or they decided that they were going to put like big pieces of cheese in the middle of the meatloaf and that would like quote, melt. Ugh, God, terrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, I could see there being a lot of, of miss of foul plays on a meatloaf like that. Ugh. I grew, yeah, I grew just, up in a, in a good meatloaf house. That's good. Was yours, uh, what style of meatloaf did you grow up with? We had the two kinds. We had the one where it was uh, just your basic egg breadcrumb mixture with bacon on top with the uh, the ketchup type mixed with brown sugar type layer on top. Uh-huh. And the second one was a Reuben. So it was actually ground up turkey with sauerkraut wrapped in it and then the same kind of bacon and ketchup crust on the top. It was really good. Now that one sounds kind of cool, actually. Hmm. Wow. I, uh, I'm i going to stick to my medicine meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, though. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of playing scatterboard here. What about the chili? You mentioned chili. That's something <laughs> everyone likes to make with ground venison. I, I think this might be true for everyone, but everyone thinks they have the world's best chili recipe. Mine I, actually is. Right. I think my <laughs> wife's is the best chili, but I saw yours, and you're claiming it as well, Hank. Can we talk about chili? What makes a uh, great there's chili? There's only one way to to solve that problem. Tell me, Dan. We have to have a chili cook-off. <laughs> Deal. I'll be, I will be the judge. Deal. I, I don't have much hope. Set this, set, the, <laughs> set this up, Mark. Yeah, we should. But So first, first then, Hank, tell me your secrets. <laughs> so my chili is a little bit different from a lot of chilies in most of the country because – um, my chili takes a, a, a very deep nod to actual Mexico and it has very little tomato product in it. It's, it's got a little bit of tomato paste, but mostly it is, it's chilies. It's 
those dried chilies that you get in a Mexican market, and they're puree, they're reconstituted and pureed, and then it has molasses in it. It's got uh, coffee in it. It can have beans. Uh, I typically do do beans, but when I'm in Texas, I leave them out because they will kill you if you put beans in Texas and Mexico or in Texas. Hmm. They they, for, they they get really uptight. Like all of your listeners uh, who are from Texas are gonna be like, oh, "It's a nice stew, but there was beans in it, so it was not chili." <laughs> they really like they really take it seriously. Wow. Um, and I will most often use ground meat, but sometimes I use chopped or you know cubed or diced meat as well. And it's the it's just a very different chili than most people make it's not very heavy on vegetables it's got a lot of onions in it but no green peppers no nothing else kind of floating around in it it's all of the vegetables that you want with it will go on top you know like cilantro and uh, pickled pickled onions and you know chili peppers that kind of thing Hmm. pretty spicy it can be but i typically make it so that it's just very warm and then if you want to make it spicy you either throw hot sauce on at the end or you uh, pick, throw pickled jalapenos on at the end. Love that. Is there any other, you know, I think the standard soup of sorts, I don't know if you technically call it soup, but the standard venison or ground venison type soup is, is a chili, if we're talking about that kind of meal. I, I've never tried any other types of soups, I guess, other than like a basic beef and vegetable soup, but mixing in venison instead of the beef. Any other soup ideas for venison, ground venison or otherwise? I don't know that I would do it with ground venison, although meatball soups are really good. So you make little teeny meatballs and throw them in the soup. Those are great. Uh, in fact, I have a uh, recipe similar to that. You know Italian wedding soup? Yeah. it's you know That's great with venison. Um, and you can do it one of two ways. You can do it with the little teeny meatballs. Uh, or you can do it, There's there will be a recipe for it. Actually, my next book uh, is this other way. Is you take the uh, shank or your shoulder or neck and you just braise the heck out of it, and then you shred it up, and then it's a very thick stew made with the broth that you just braise that with, and then lots and lots and lots of vegetables, and it's just it's a it's a rib sticker, and it's mm. got lots of cabbage and you know things like uh, you know chicories in it and dandelion greens and you know kale and it's it's a really good good hearty winter soup and it's just it's used with really garbage parts of the venison sounds pretty good speaking of all that stuff you just mentioned dandelion greens and kale and stuff like that if i wanted to make like uh like a all from the field meal so i've got some vegetables from my garden maybe and i've got my venison what would like the best all-purpose thing i can grab from the woods typically to add to my my meal would it be like a dandelion green or something like that or, or what should i be looking for when it comes to gathering something natural that might be a, an all-purpose type deal well you could do a lot worse than morel mushrooms that's for sure yeah that's true um and they dry really well to use all year round you know dandelions are good um you know if you're up in the great lakes wild rice um you know, oh God, it's just that's a hard question because you're just where are you? What time of year is it? You know, it's just there's there's so many variables of what you could possibly do. But I mean, the one thing that pretty much everybody listening to this will have some kind of access to would be morel mushrooms. And they're so good. Oh yeah. And they dry perfectly well. So I've got jars and jars and jars of them, you know, basically dry, waiting for venison season. 
Yeah, that's that's one thing that I I never grew up in a mushroom hunting family or anything like that, but I've decided that I need to get into that because holy smokes, they're good. Oh yeah, I mean, I live in the West, so I have an advantage. Uh, wherever there was a big giant fire the year before, then I, uh, I I go there the next year, and that's where the morels are. You guys have natural morels, and so you have patches that come up year after year after year, and they're heavily guarded. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know guys who <laughs> I know guys who have just you know gone to their deathbed, and they haven't even told their wives where those mushrooms were. I've got a buddy whose dad will let you turkey hunt his various farms and properties, but if you touch morels, you're you're as good as dead. You better not touch the morels. <laughs> That's hilarious because he probably knows too. Like, oh yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. There's always like rumors of how many pounds of morels he's found, but uh, you never know where. He never he never shares. What state is this? Michigan. Oh yeah, yeah. You that's got to be May too. That's late. Yep, that sounds about right. Yep. When I'm picking morels in May, I'm usually at six thousand feet. Wow. I, I rarely get over sixty feet here in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, moving moving on from from ground, let's talk our back straps. Last time we talked, I think we we asked you about like the perfect way to grill a steak, and I think you talked about some stuff with the back strap there. Um, but any other unique preparations or any of your other standbys that we didn't talk about last time when it comes to using that back strap? I'd love to hear a couple different ideas for, for our listeners on that. Well, one of the interesting things, this is, you know, it's a little sporty. You're talking about unique. I mean, other than just cooking it in a pan, I really like, I really like venison tartare and you make it out of the back strap. And, you know, if it's, if you never had that, that's basically chopped raw venison. And it's served with, usually with shallots and often with uh, some roasted red pepper and spices and salt, like usually crunchy salt, like, you know, that big crunchy flaky salt. And you drop an egg in the center of it, you know, an egg yolk. And it's a classic dish. It's big, big in Wisconsin. I first actually had it in Wisconsin. And that with bread? You, yeah, actually with toast. Yeah. Toast. Okay. Although I've seen it, I've seen it eat in a little ghetto with like Wonder Bread. I'm like, really, guys? <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. Wow. But I mean, it's the the reason why you can do that is is no one really gets sick from venison. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. But in terms of a food safety standpoint, if it's been frozen, if you're fresh, I mean, it just people just don't get sick from it. Um, what you would want to do, if you were at all worried, is Deal with it right out of the freezer. It should be cold anyway. It's also easier to cut when it is right out of the freezer. And because and you have to cut it. I personally don't like ground meat tartare. It's weird to me. I like it. Uh, you What you do is you take a little piece of backstrap. Maybe, I don't know. A little goes a long way with tartare. So let's say you're feeding four for, and you wouldn't feed it as a, it, it's kind of a party appetizer. It's not something that you, you know, sit down with a big plate of. So maybe take a half a pound. And it's it's semi thawed, you know, and you cu- that makes it very easy to cut into very small dice. The French term would be a brunoise, uh, which is I think French for the worst cut you're going to make your rookie chef do because it's these, <laughs> it's these tiny little dice. It, you know, for a tartare, it doesn't have to be dice, but you know, brunoise is actually squares. If they're not squares, the head chef yells at you. But anyway, small pieces is what I mean. And if you do that and then you mix things with, you know, I, I have a I have a recipe I'm very happy with on the website, which is 
uh, I can share with you if you want. Yeah. Um, that recipe is very Nordic and, uh, it is, it's done almost exclusively with backstrap. Let me bring it up here. I don't have it memorized. Sorry. <laughs> we won't judge. <laughs> I know I have like a thousand recipes on the, uh, on the site and it's, it's one of those things like, well, you don't remember them all? Like, no, that's why I have the website. Yeah. So it's basically venison cut into tiny little pieces. We're still talking tartar. Yes. Okay. Um, with a one one shallot, also cut into little pieces. I use I I take some juniper berries. I really like the taste of juniper with venison. That would be another one of my all time go to spices. You know, if you can find juniper berries or buy them online or whatever, venison and juniper love each other. They're I use them as as many as, as much as you can. So I I chop them up really small, maybe just one or two, just to get some flavor because it can be strong. A little bit of caraway seeds. Uh, a little bit of ground black pepper, smoked salt. Smoked salt is a huge one because it adds that smoky flavor without actually putting heat to it. And then uh, when you serve it, I'll grate some lemon zest over it. I'll add a little bit of, of vinegar, like right at the end, and then uh, toss that together. And then everybody gets an egg yolk. And it's the egg you crack that egg yolk and that becomes the sauce for the tartare. And it's it's a really really good it's a it's a great bite. You serve oh. it on crackers or bread or something crispy. Sounds a little out there for me, but I can I can see it being interesting. That's for sure. If you wanted to strip it down uh, to its classic form, it would be salt, shallot, black pepper, a little bit of uh, of acid, you know, citrus or uh, or vinegar right when you serve it, and then the egg yolk. I've had tartare before, and I believe it was lamb tartare, and it was it was pretty good. It was different, but it, I liked it. Hmm. It's venison sushi. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of out there, on our last episode with you, Hank, you probably I think you saw this on Twitter. on uh, On our last episode, we had asked you for like one really out there venison recipe that people should try, and you had said roast the whole head. I think the venison barbacoa with the head. Yep. And did you see that on Twitter? One of our listeners actually tried it and pulled it I off. I did. I did. <laughs> That's pretty yes. cool. I'm always – somebody made my uh, – I have a very uh, – every now and again I'll get all chefy because, I, you know, I can. And <laughs> <laughs> and so I did this dish called Snow in Winter. It's kind of like a Nordic death magnal, you know, recipe for snow goose. And it's I love it. It's a great dish, but it's all black. You know, the, like the whole plate is black. And it's like you eat it at solstice. Somebody made it. I was like, oh, my God, somebody actually made it. That's so cool. That's got to be pretty cool. Just everything, probably all the different recipes you put out there when you when you hear from people. I imagine that's got to be pretty, uh, pretty fulfilling seeing people enjoying those recipes. It really is. I mean, especially because, uh, you know, the ones that I I really it's kind of both like. I love the fact that I have like a, a billion positive reviews on my smoked salmon and on my venison chili, but I also have I really get a kick out of people who made like the thing like the snow in winter, you know, the somebody who actually stretched and did something very difficult and it and it worked because, you know, my not only did my recipe work, but it was also equally important is that the way I wrote the recipe worked so that it was clear enough for them to pull it off. Yeah, that's a good point because that that's one of the. I imagine the greatest struggles is is conveying some of the nuance in how you're actually preparing it through, you know, a simple sentence or two. 
Oh yeah, I mean that's why I mean all the recipes that in the upcoming book and, and in fact the the duck book as well, they've all been tested by what I call civilians. You know, I don't let chefs test my recipes because they they can read shorthand and they they'll naturally know what to do. I like to give recipes to regular people, people who are going to buy the book, and if they can make them and if they like them, then I know the recipe works. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I, I definitely need the layman's terms for our stuff. That's for sure. Oh yeah. What about uh, what about the whole backstrap? Now we're talking a dinner type portion. Um, we just you shared an appetizer there. Anything? Any man? I, there's there's a standard just just grill it whole with some salt. Um, I've tried some different variations. I think from you and from others with various you know, like you mentioned berries and all sorts of different sauces and things to pair it with. Any other favorite when it comes to to a dinner portion on the loin thing. What about stuffed loins? I know people do that. Anything like that up your uh, up your alley that you'd recommend? You know, I don't. Um, I I don't like stuffed loins. I think it's a, a stunt, uh, and I don't think the result is really very good. Um, you know, backstraps your money cut. Don't mess with it. You know, it's it is what it is, and it's as pure piece of meat that sh- that can be enjoyed by everybody and it is the it is the easiest most accessible part of the deer so I, I mean yeah i like sauces with it but most of the time it's like salt fire and pepper maybe a squeeze of lemon you know it's just i don't i don't get too esoteric with backstrap very often now you could make you could throw it in curry you could throw it in a in a vietnamese soup like pho you i mean you could do chinese food with it you know, you could do all of those things, and and I do. But if you, if I really if if I'm serving like a loin, like a whole loin, I'm not going to mess with it too much. Last time we talked about uh, grilling the loin, so we talked about how to do it, you know, an outdoor grill. Could you walk us through how you would do that inside? Let's say we're in the middle of the winter, we're not going to use our grill outside. Um, how would be the best way to prepare a whole loin if you're stuck inside? Just like a roast, like we talked to, you know about half an hour ago about how to do that roast in the oven where you, you start it low and then you t- you know, the interior temperature to maybe 110, 115. And then uh, the only difference though on this one is you wouldn't put it back in the oven. You would sear it on the, uh, in a pan on the stovetop. So basically you take your whole, I'm, I'm assuming it's a boneless piece of venison. Yep. It doesn't have to be, it could be chops. But, but you know, you know what I'm talking about, a rack, all attached to chops. And you take that and then you, you know, you salt it, you oil it, you, and you cook it in the oven until it's about 110 on inside. And then you pull it out and then you just, you sear it in a roaring hot pan with just a little bit of fat. You know, I like to use in this case, like grapeseed oil or canola oil, something that has a very high smoke point. And then you just sear it and get all of that crispiness on the outside then you let it rest, and then you cut it, and that's that's probably how I would do it inside because it's just it's a little bit easier to uh, to control than if you try to do it all in the oven. Hmm. See that that's that's new for me because for some reason I had it backwards. I was searing it, you know, hot on the pan, and then putting the pan in the oven, and then letting go low and slow for a little bit, then to finish it. But you're saying do the opposite. Either way works, but again, if you do hot second. You have a little bit more control over the internal temperature. Right. Hmm. Interesting stuff, Dan. Uh, we're, we're, what are you thinking here? Where do you want to go with things next? I've I been know, I've but... been controlling it for a ways. No, here. no, that's fine. I, I just 
this time in my life, I do not have, unless I have a weekend where I can, the kids are maybe drugged and they don't, uh, they, they don't move. They're just, so like every Tuesday, basically, (laughs) basically. Yeah. Or when they're on, you know, when they're on, uh, like sinus medication, like they are right now, I might have some extra, (laughs) extra time to, to cook. What's a, what's a, maybe a good recipe for someone who has maybe less than an hour to cook a, a, a venison meal? Well, the crockpot stews and braises we talked about earlier, that's mm-hmm. one of them because that's one of those things that you do in the beginning and then you're, you know, it's like 30 minutes when you get home from work. Um, you know, pieces of backstrap. I typically will cut, you know, I don't shoot giant deer, so I will typically cut a foot, foot lengths of backstrap. You know, you take that out when you come home from work to let it come to room temperature. You can just sear that in a pan. You don't even need the oven. Do that pan sauce we talked about. Serve it with some mashed potatoes or a salad. You're good to go. I mean, I could do that in 20 minutes. Gotcha. Hard to go wrong with that one. That's meat and potatoes. It's a heck of a good meal. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's super easy. Um, you know, if you had flank, flank meat from the deer, you could do fajitas. That's pretty easy. Uh, you could do fajitas with backstrap too. You could do fajitas with, uh, you know, whole muscle roasts for the hind leg as well. Because you're just, you know, you're cutting it up into pieces. And then just searing it real fast, right? Yeah, super fast, super hot. Yeah. Wow, I'm, I'm getting hungry. That's for sure. Um, one of the things we we I, for whatever reason, I think had on the top of my mind earlier on. Maybe we were talking about the smoker. Um, what about jerky? I don't think we've talked about this yet at all. Do you, do you dabble in, in jerky or anything like that at all, Hank? Oh yeah. I make lots of jerky. I make both ground meat jerky and, uh, and whole muscle jerky. Is there a, is there a simple way to, to make good jerky? Yes. Um, well, if you, the easiest way would be to, I do a, a chipotle jerky that I have on the site and that's super easy. It's, you know, all it requires is a, is a trip down the Hispanic aisle of your local supermarket or to Latin market to get chipotles and adobo, which are very easy to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you live in a really, really small town, you should be able to find them. Um, and if you don't have them, no big deal. You can use like hot sauce if you want. But basically the structure is this. It is thinly sliced pieces of venison in a brine. And the uh, and then the, you leave them in that brine in the fridge for two to three days. Because when you dry out the jerky, it's going to lose a lot of its punch. It, you, you know, you, you basically want to create an environment that is so full of flavor that you really wouldn't want to eat it as is. But once it's dried out, you're you're actually good to go because it's it's everything mellows out in the drying process. So your basic brine, your minimum brine, would be a quarter cup of kosher salt in one quart of water. And then when you have that, then you soak the venison in that for two to three days. That's it. That's all you really need. Everything else is gravy. Hmm. I mean, I do it with soy sauce because that provides salt. I do it with Worcestershire. That's salt and acid. So, I mean, the the, the basic rule is that you're burying it, you know, submerging it in a very salty, salty brine that has lots of flavor in it, and then you're drying it out. So your easiest way to make it is to take one of those big hind leg roasts and have it partially frozen and slice it thin. And then you put it into the brine. And how, 
Do you need a special smoker to dry it out, or have you ever done it just using your oven? Yeah, you can do it with the oven. The new ovens now are very good. They can actually go down to like 175 sometimes. And you basically want to put your oven as low as it'll go. And what I would do is I would put it on a baking sheet that has a drying rack set on top of it. So because it's going to drip. You can't just lie them in your in your oven. It's going to be bad. And you don't want to put them directly on a surface because the underside is not going to dry very well. You have to keep flipping them over and over and over again. If you have them on a drying rack, if you have them on a drying rack, then you can, you know, just look, put them in the oven and then just let them dry. And it takes, I don't know, two, three, four hours to do it. The dehydrator takes longer because it's cooler. I've heard some people say you need to keep the oven door open with like a can of beer or something like that, like a, a you know, not full can of beer, empty can of beer. Um, is is why why do you need to oh, do that? Oh, it it promotes air circulation. If you have a convection oven, turn the convection on. Hmm. It's okay. all about air circulation. That's why you know basically you're creating a very hot dehydrator by doing that. And then the drying rack you mentioned, you could you could do the same type of thing maybe by putting a pan on the bottom shelf and then just lying your meat on the top just rack in your oven. Would that you work too? could, but the the grill the grates of the rack on the top are very wide, and you'd have to be dealing with very large pieces of jerky to deal with that. It's not impossible, but you want a finer grate than that. Okay, I think I can. I think I can make. We can get a drying rack. Essentially, take a drying rack that would fit on top of a baking sheet, and then you right. set it there. So then there's like a half an inch gap between the baking sheet and the top of your drying rack, right? Yeah, you can get them in any supermarket. You know, you just go to the sort of the house, the, the the kitchen supply section of any supermarket, and they'll have them. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, that seems no easy need, enough. Yeah. No need to go to like William Sonoma or anything. Yeah. Good, because I don't like shopping there. <laughs> I know. Very, very, very expensive stuff. Good stuff, but that's that, that's where you have somebody else buy it for you. Perfect for Christmas. Yeah. So speaking of Christmas, I guess the last thing I have on my mind is. If I am hosting a holiday gathering, what would be your single best recommendation for a main course for Christmas or whatever holiday gathering I might have in the coming weeks? What would be your your go-to if we haven't talked about it already? I would say one of the things that we talked about already, which which would be a a big hind leg roast with you know homemade cranberry sauce, mashed potatoes, greens, you know the whole maybe some dressing, you know a really you know, like that big football roast that you get off the pine leg, you know, just the biggest roast you've got off the biggest piece of venison and then just done to a turn and sliced thin, just like a roast beef. And just nobody could say no to that. That's just a very classic. We know that was served at the first Thanksgiving. Um, you know, there's no evidence that Turkey was actually served at the first Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, either that or the, you know, the whole crown roast of, of backstrap. That's another really, good way to go uh, I mean that's it you, you want to cook I mean if you had the beans you could slow roast an entire hind leg that'd be kind of cool I've done that before wow uh, you do that in a big smoker and that's pretty cool because you know there's nothing quite like hauling out a big old haunch of venison on, the, on a big table and slicing off pieces and throwing them at people that would, that'd, have the, <laughs> that'd have the wow factor that's for sure yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, uh, shoot, I think uh, I think I've got some good ideas to bust out this holiday season. What about you, Dan? Do you feel a little bit better about up in your game? 
Well, as soon as this is over, I'm just going to go buy the book. Well, that's an issue, though. Why not? Right? Why is it an issue? Because I don't think the book, the book, the venison book, at least, Hank, is not available yet. But uh, can you tell us about that now, actually? Sure. Um, the venison book, which is Buck, Buck, Moose, uh, which is we wanted to name it that because it's dealing with all different antler things, so not just deer. Um, we got funding for it on a Kickstarter last you know, November. And it's going to come out in, in the middle of 2016. We're shooting for late August. Uh, you can order it on Amazon now, so that's a good thing. So if you look for Buck Buck Moose on Amazon.com, uh, you'll find it, and then you can you can reserve a copy. In the meantime, uh, I would direct you to the website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Uh, it's honest-food.net, and the easiest way really to find me though is just to Google my name. Uh, if you Google my name, you'll find Hunter Angler Gardener Cook and just look for venison recipes. And I've got, oh, hell, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 venison recipes on the on the website. And then that should tide you over until the book comes out. Yeah, I uh, I definitely recommend you do that, Dan, because I, I think I mentioned the first time we talked with Hank. But basically, well, not not all, but almost all of the great venison recipes that we whip up here on a on a regular basis are are Hanks. There's definitely been a lot of good ones. Like I said, the meat, the meatloaf is a standby. Uh, the way you do the backstrap, we've done that a lot. Um, the sauce you mentioned, we've tried. We love that. So there's there's a lot of good stuff there. So highly recommend it. I'm looking forward to the book too. I, I think. Well, I, I know I, I contributed to the Kickstarter campaign, so I've got one guaranteed to come down the road. So I'm excited about that. And um, like you mentioned, Hank, honest food.net is the place to go get more information for you. And then you mentioned it's on Amazon, the book too, right? Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, Dan, I guess you can't get the recipes from the book now, but you can pre-order it. So there you go. Right. I'm talking about the other book. I was talking about the other book. I'm sure oh. there's some good stuff in there. Hunt, gather, cook. Yeah. Yes, there are. There's there's way fewer medicine recipes in that book, but uh, they're, they're enough to get you tied up. There's enough to tide you over. And long, sto- long story short, I just need to buy the book and go to the website and start following your instructions instead of doing, trying to cook myself. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I can say you have to, but I mean, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say that. And I think, uh, I think to your point, Dan, kind of, is that there's something you said about just trying new things, right? I think right. some of us kind of fall into the old. I oh, will just put ground venison in the stuff I usually put my regular ground beef in and make the same regular, same old, same old things. But there's a lot of fun in trying some of these unique preparations and, and going out of your comfort zone. So it's uh, it's nice that there's someone and a resource like what you've put out there, Hank, that can help us do that in a way that doesn't make for disastrous results. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, that's that's really why I do what I do is is, is to is to be a trusted resource. And you know, so people, they, I mean, people work hard for their venison, and and I. It kills me when I hear, you know, oh, I made this and I, I had a guy in Europe, you know, cook one of his things at centigrade when he didn't realize that my temperatures were Fahrenheit. Oh, no. <laughs> and so what I did after that is I went through every one of my recipes and, you know, I have hundreds of them and I, and I put degrees Fahrenheit after every single one because I didn't want anybody else to make that mistake. Yeah. That'd be a doozy, I bet. Yeah. Like, really? You really thought I was meaning 400 <laughs> degrees centigrade? It's like the surface of the sun. <laughs> That that would be uh, some tough venison, I bet. <laughs> All right, Hank. Well, this has been this has been great as as we've come to expect. So, 
man, thank you for so much for sharing this insight, your ideas, and uh, we'll be sure to include links to all of your stuff on the blog post for this as well. I appreciate it. All right. Well, good luck this holiday season with your various cooking escapades. I'm sure you'll be doing some things, and, and thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and uh, I will talk to you soon, I bet. Sounds great, Hank. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, well, there you go. Another episode is in the books, and I hope you all found that as helpful as Dan and I did. We're both excited to get in the kitchen and try out some of these new ideas. Now, before we let you go, though, one important reminder. As we mentioned earlier today, and as we mentioned last week, we've got an awesome sweepstakes going on for Wired to Hunt, in which we're giving away some great prizes. That first pra- excuse me, the first place prize is a brand new Bear Archery Arena 30 bow. Second prize is a Sitka Gear Celsius jacket and Fanatic beanie. And third prize is a Wired to Hunt hat and t-shirt. So to enter that sweepstakes, go to wiredtohunt.com slash holiday, and that will send you to a Facebook page that's hosting this giveaway. Once you get there, you just need to enter your name, email address, birth date, and a code phrase. And that code phrase was only shared during episode 83 of this podcast. That was last week's podcast. I'm not going to tell you what that code phrase is now. Make sure you listen to number 83 if you haven't already. And once you get that code phrase, you'll also enter that in at the page I just mentioned. So the sweepstakes is open until December 24th, 2015, and we'll then announce the winners on the next episode of the podcast after that. So again, visit wiredtohunt.com slash holiday to enter that giveaway. Now, also another reminder, if you've been enjoying this show, this podcast, we would really, really, really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. Well over 400 of you have already done that, and that's unbelievable, and I just appreciate it so much. Sharing that feedback with us is really helpful, and it's very helpful in helping new people decide whether or not they want to listen to the show, so thank you so much for doing that. Speaking of thanks, we also need to thank our partners who help make this show possible, so big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, lacrosse boots and the whitetail institute of north america so with all that said thank you again for joining us today i hope you've got some new inspiration for the kitchen and of course i hope you'll stay wired to hunt outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.